Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Um, if you have a, a Bible with you, let's turn to the book of Corinthians. First Corinthians, please. And we're going to be reading from chapter 13 in a few moments as we conclude our conversation around relationships and what is important and as Christians how we are called to live in regard to God, ourselves and each other. Um, Just a little bit of a back kind of story to this. I I was invited this week, I think it was this week, I lose track of the days, to meet with two other ministers in the city in large churches um, with the desire, I suppose, for us to build together a sense of an apostolic Uh, foundation in the city and to facilitate uh, and help and encourage other Elim ministers and Elim churches in the city. Um, It was very kind of Paul Hudson to invite me to do that. In in our dialogue as ministers, we were asked to just kind of share a little bit about our own journey, our own story, and it was good to get to know these two other people a little bit better. But actually, the big question that came out of that was, why is it, what, what causes or what hinders, if you like, the sense of the extended goodness of the kingdom of God from materializing and manifesting in a local church? Now, while we may not be all that we want to be, in many ways, we are blessed and highly favored to have the kind of environment that we have. Amen? We have people who love to worship the Lord. Amen? Can you imagine being in a church where you were the worship leader? Because there wasn't a team, or there wasn't someone that could carry the songs particularly well. Can you imagine? Maybe some of us have had those experiences. They can be quite life-changing in some senses, because you realize God will use you wherever you make yourself available. Amen? And I know it's not all about numbers, and, and, and we try very hard, I think, as a community, not to focus on numbers, but can you imagine if there was only, after 10 years of all that hard work, the same 25 people that you started out with? In fact, you may have lost 20 of them and gained 20 more over 25 years. For the minister in that environment, that would be highly challenging. Would you agree? And, and of course, everyone doesn't start this journey thinking, Um, I suppose that it's going to be easy. I mean, Jesus clearly reminds us, doesn't he, that we will have hardships and trials and struggles in this world. But I can honestly say as someone who's been in ministry for quite, well, too long, some people would say, but quite a substantial period of time, that being a minister is not the easy job that perhaps people think it is. I mean, I know some of you think we only work Sundays, and some of you think that's only half a day. And thank you for that, because it's true. And so tomorrow I'm flying out to Barbados. I'll be back for next Sunday. It's half a day. Um, I have a holiday home there that you paid for. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you. We certainly don't go into ministry for the money, um, as, as well as we are blessed in churches. That's not the, the kind of primary goal. We, we end up in ministry, I suppose, sometimes as a result of a, a compelling call that draws you, and you know this, into places of geography and communities that in the natural realm you probably would never ever dream of being part of. And so 
It's not that I'm saying that a minister's life is hard. In fact, I feel very privileged to be called by God. But I'm saying it's not perhaps as easy as maybe some people think it is. There are nuances to that call. You know, we went to Glasgow. I had a two-year-old daughter who'd just been diagnosed with Turner syndrome. She had um, a growth, her, her, the platelets in her head were growing out one side and they weren't growing out the other, so she had an abnormal head. And um, we had just got the diagnosis that Emily had Turner syndrome. I'd never heard of Turner syndrome. We knew that she wasn't particularly um, fully uh, engaged with us. And so we trundled off to Glasgow, leaving behind our family. Primarily, most of them were in this church and some in the city. And we went with just one thing to hold on to. And that was we heard the whisper of God for us to go and be part of the Glasgow leadership in the church. Massive leap. Massive leap. I don't like rain. Do you know our first few months there, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. I was convinced we would see an arc come over the horizon at some point. It just rained. You know, we didn't know anybody. We didn't speak the language. <laughs> it's true. And culturally, it was very different from the city of Bristol. Sorry, Birmingham. But we went because God asked us to go. Now, I don't regret any of that. I think my life has been so enriched by some of these invitations the Holy Spirit has given us. But ministers can be in churches that are not flourishing. They can be in churches that are not seeing people worship Christ in fullness. They can be in churches where there are all kinds of contexts and situations that are less than hope-filled. And so as we were chatting on Monday about these various churches throughout the city, we were trying to understand what is it that makes the difference in a, a local assembly like this? What would really make the difference? And of course, you know, like most people, um, people have all kind of practical solutions, don't they? Some would say, well, maybe we could resource these churches with worship leaders. I mean, in this church, we have an embarrassment of riches in our worship team, don't we? have so many people who are gifted and talented. Could we resource the city and have an apostolic approach to engaging with other smaller contexts by releasing some of our worship team to do that? Well, you know, that sounds lovely in theory, but even in this church, with all that we have, we struggle sometimes to find people to make those commitments and investments on a week-by-week -week basis. So while it all may look like it's easy to organize, sometimes that's tricky. People have busy lives. And, you know, you're asking of that person a massive leap away from this to another environment where they don't have all of the resources at their disposal to lead people in worship. And is it something we should explore? I think perhaps it is. Um, but there are nuances to that that need to be considered. And in that dialogue, as we were talking about what causes life, I realized it wasn't having a good worship leader. Because you can be in the best possible environment of worship and hearts can still be cold. And so I was reminded of something the Holy Spirit showed me a number of years ago. And I'm going to share a couple of thoughts with you, particularly in this transitional moment. It's important for us to keep our eyes on the things that matter. Okay? I was conscious a couple of years ago that when I was leading the church in Glasgow, we would have all of these international speakers come. And it was just wonderful to have the breadth of ministry and the experience people had, particularly in the realms of the Spirit. 
And um, what would happen is the church would come, but they'd all get excited for about an hour and a half. And then life would just go back. It's almost like you clear the weeds in your garden, plant your flowers, and then next week you come out, and in spite of all the watering of your flowers, the weeds seem to be stronger than your flowers. It felt like that as we were leading the church. And so I began, after exhaustion for a number of years and all these conferences and speakers, and I began to ask some questions from the Holy Spirit. What is it that causes life? What is it that causes people to change? And God gave me this example. It may be of some benefit to you. When we have a guest speaker coming, here's what we expect. We expect them to raise the spiritual temperature of our church. Amen? Otherwise, come on, talk to me. I can go home and be ignored. Okay, otherwise, what's the point in having a guest speaker? They're not fulfilling um, their mandate unless they're bringing something more than or something other than what we currently have. And so I'm very choosy about who we have to speak because unless they're bringing something more than, and it's important to think that through. So we had all of them. We had Mark Stibby, we had Mark DuPont, we had John and Carol Arlott, we had Graham Cook, we had, I mean, the list was endless of these people, and they came, I think, because it was a good church and because the ministry gift was great. It's a long way to come for free. And God showed me this picture. He said, you know, when you have a guest speaker, it's a bit like this. They're like a casserole that you take out of the oven. Everything's sizzling. Has anybody ever taken a casserole or a pot out of the oven? You have to wear gloves or the tea towel or whatever you use. And if you were to take that casserole, that sizzling, hot, untouchable casserole, and put it inside your fridge, what would happen in your fridge is that the ecosystem would start to adjust, and it, it would, the temperature inside the fridge would increase. Make sense? But which of these two forces eventually wins the fridge because it has a consistent level of culture or temperature inside of it and when you have a guest speaker come that's what they do they lift the temperature they should lift the temperature but actually if the climate stay with me if the climate doesn't work with that temperature and adjust to that temperature, what will happen is, however great they were, however wonderful the ministry time was, however fantastic our experience of God was, this culture will supersede that temperature and things will go back to how they were. So, in this dialogue on Monday or Tuesday or whatever it was of last week, this week, some week anyway, we were talking about that particular phenomena so we could send a worship pastor, or we could send somebody who did this, or, and basically all they would do is the same thing as the casserole would do. They would change the temperature for but a moment, but the real issue that we have to face in churches as leaders is how do we consistently, incrementally heighten the spiritual temperature of the community that we're living in? We're not here to preach good sermons to you. You probably figured that out anyway. <laughs> Okay, um, we're not here to entertain you. Goodness knows that we are not very good at that. And we're certainly not here to tickle your ears with what you want to hear. You probably figured that out. But our role, my job particularly, and the elders' jobs profoundly, is to raise the spiritual temperature of this community until it matches the realms of the Holy Spirit that God lives and presides in. 
Amen? And there are lots of scriptures that can add weight to that. Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In um, Ephesians it says, Awake, awake, O sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are constantly reminded in the scriptures that God's realm, God's capacity is greater than our appetite or our ability, and so we have to be raised. We used a phrase earlier on that describes that incremental change, ever-changing from one degree of glory to the next and to the next, until we become like Him. And becoming like Him is not that we act like Jesus, because that would be great, but becoming like Him is that we live our lives the way Jesus lived His life. I think everyone wants the life Jesus offers, but very few are willing to live the life that Jesus lived. Isn't that true? So, while sitting there, the Holy Spirit spoke to me about something that I kind of know but don't know, and so I thought I would share it with you. And where better to speak into this than 1 Corinthians chapter 13? It's like the golden age of the Spirit's power working in the life of the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, you can have all of that in a local church assembly. You can have prophecy. We had prophecy. We had people come who had words of knowledge over people. We had this incredible sense of the, the, the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Anybody up for a bit of that? Come on, talk to me. We all want that. That's a good day out, isn't it? That's a great meeting when God moves like that. But notice what it says there. If I have all of that and I don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Let's go deeper. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. You see, what we forget sometimes is that God is a generous giver. We forget that. So whenever you see people moving in an anointing or having a particular gift, the whole point of the gift is to move you past the person who's using it to the one who gave it. Every single anointing and gift that's given to the church is not given so that we draw attention to ourselves. Those gifts are given to us so that we can draw people and cause them to be attentive to Christ. In fact, every spiritual gift that the church has is given primarily to the individual so that they could know Christ in a particular unique and profound way. The gift of prophecy isn't that you stand on a platform. I said this to you yesterday at the ladies' meeting. That's not the main event in prophecy, that you stand on a platform and speak over someone's life. The gift of prophecy means that you're hearing the voice of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the most profound privilege. If you get an opportunity to share it, a double blessing may be yours, but you are already blessed because you have heard the sound of many rushing waters speaking and bringing life to your soul. We've made so much about the platform and so little about the private place with the gift of prophecy, and we're impressed with all kinds of people who carry all kinds of gifts, but the most impressive thing is that it's the God who gives that's so blessed, full, impressive and spectacular, not the person prophesying. 
We've almost stopped thinking when it comes to matters like this. And that's what Paul is addressing in this church. He's saying, you guys have got hijacked by something that's not the main thing. The main thing is that God is here with you. God is speaking. God is moving. Things are happening. It's Him. It's Him. To Him be the glory. Great things He is doing. Now wake up with me, please. If I give all I possess to the poor, there's a wonderful comment to those who are involved in social justice. You know, I've been in churches long enough to know that the people involved in social justice don't like the people who are involved in prophecy. We need to do something, Pastor, for the people who are in need. Yes, we do. But how much better would it be if we worked together and gave them food and prophesied life over them? What's all this sectarianism in the body of Christ? You can't divide the spirit up. Well, you know, I'm a man of the word. Well, that's brilliant, but we also need people who are men of the spirit. We need the word and the spirit. We need acts of kindness, and we need prophecy. The whole thing is the nature and the character of God. If I give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have, I gain nothing. And here we go. Are you ready? Why don't you read it with me? Can we get it up on the screen, John, please? Love is patient. Come on, say it out loud. Pretend you're in some kind of established church where people recite things. Love, patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Just stop for a moment and just weigh your heart and life against those phrases. Because you may be the best prophet in the room, but what's impressive to God is not the gift He has given you, but how you have utilized that gift to bless the body. That's what impresses God. I think it was Mandy yesterday at our ladies' gathering. Yes, I did speak at the ladies' meeting yesterday. Thank you for the invitation. I'm not longer confused about my sexual identity, so I'm grateful to you for that. She said that when she first got baptized with the Holy Spirit, the one thing that was remarkable about that experience was not that she could move in the gifts of prophecy, but she, as she called herself hard-faced, that's not true about her, she started to love people. And she was uncomfortable with that. You see, when love takes over, it is uncomfortable. Because you no longer get to sit in judgment. <laughs> You're compelled by the one who is love to love unconditionally. How profound that her memory of the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't all the spectacular gifts, but the fact that she found herself, almost without wanting to, loving people. It does not dishonor. It is not self-seeking. Gosh, I could camp there for a month. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Interesting phraseology. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen? Now listen here closely. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away off my childhood desires. For now we see only in a reflection or in a mirror dimly. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part then I shall be fully known. And now these three things remain. Let me just camp there for a moment. I think in the Bobby Dazzling world of the supernatural, <laughs> and it is quite a phenomenal world that I have been privileged to be part of, it's very impressive when someone comes in and they know that they know that they know. It's very impressive. And do you know why I find it so impressive? because I don't know what I know and how I know it. Is anybody like me? So when someone comes in and they have that kind of clarity and certainty, and I always think with great prophetic people, there's always an authority, and I don't mean that they shout loudly, I mean they just carry something that's a weighty thing that happens in the private place with God, that when they come into the public place, it's not just what they're saying, it's what they carry, what they, the substance of God that dwells within them and around them actually changes the atmosphere without them even saying a word. But when they speak, there's an authority attached to that. And I've seen blind eyes open, and I've seen cancers disappear, and I've seen all kinds of manifestations that have happened in churches as the Spirit of God began to move freely, and that's what we want, the Spirit of God moving freely. But all of those things are casseroles. If they don't change the culture, fundamentally, that's down to you. <laughs> Not just down to me. I can't change your culture. And every one of those things, all the spectacular that God does, are invitations to move beyond the gift to the giver. If you hear someone prophesy profoundly, take your eyes off that person and listen to the invitation attached to it that's drawing you deeper into a place with God. That's why prophecy is given to us, so that we would know God, God's ways, God's heart, God's purposes. Not that we'd be impressed because somebody can see things in the spiritual realm. And now let me take you to the thing that changes everything. You ready to hear this? Now these three things remain. I think the authorized version says abide. In other words, everything before this is temporal. Temporal. These are just temporary things. You do know that there won't be prophecy in heaven, don't you? Hello? Why? Because the fulfillment of all that has been spoken will be before you. Amen? You won't need a word of wisdom in heaven because all wisdom personified will be your incredible distraction for the rest of eternity. Amen? These are temporal ways in which we are connecting with the eternal reality of God and they will come to an end. I'm hoping not soon. And now the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, takes them to a deeper place of thinking. He says, now these three things remain. In other words, get your eyes off the temporal 
and place them and fix them firmly on the eternal. How are you doing with that? Can I just suggest that moments like this where people move and change, they are moments where we are encouraged to take our eyes off the temporal and fix them on the eternal. Without any disrespect to anyone who's ever led this church or ministered in it, you do realize it's not the ministers that create the life. And it certainly isn't you. It's the Holy Spirit. And Pastor Jason will be moving to Wells with his lovely family, but the Holy Spirit will be staying here and going there because he's everywhere. Amen? And we have to move our eyes off the temporal and fix them on the eternal. The Apostle Paul writes these words, I fix my eyes on Jesus. Why Jesus? Because everything that's anything is found in Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. He is perfect wisdom. Jesus is perfect power. Everything about Jesus is perfect. He's the image of the invisible God. When we look at Jesus, we see what God really is like. Not what we presume or think or have been told, but what God really is like. So in moments like this, while in the natural, our hearts may be a little bit kind of disrupted by what's happening, and the same is true for you, Jason. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We make every attempt to stare right in the face of the one who is permanent and eternal. And as we do that, we move out of the temporal and we move into that which God has placed before us, which is everlasting to everlasting life. And the Apostle Paul says, you think all these other things are important? You think this makes this a happy, joyous, glorious experience? Let me tell you, Paul's saying, what really matters here in our singing, in our speaking, in our relationships, in this community, here's what really is important. Faith, hope, and love. So, if you want to know how well a community is doing, you've got to ask yourself the question. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is our faith level? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Faith isn't me demanding of God, and I've heard people pray these things, that He do what He say He will do. You don't honestly think that God is resisting giving you all that He wants. It's you who are resisting receiving all that He has. We don't tell God what to do. In fact, the opposite is true. He tells you what to do. And you know why? Because you need to hear it. You and I need to hear it. We need to hear what God has to say on a matter. So faith isn't me getting everything I want. Whatever your culture tells you, whatever your pastor told you, whatever the world that you live in is, is reminding you faith looks like, it does not look like that. Faith is about your knowledge of the person and the character and the nature of the God that you worship. 
my faith is not wrapped up in the hand of God. My faith is wrapped up in the very heart of God. It's who He is that I trust. Amen? Not just what He does, because sometimes, sometimes He doesn't always do what I think He should do. And when I get to heaven, we're going to have words about that. <laughs> when I was a young man, there were about five or six women, I know you'll struggle to believe this, who thought that God had asked me to marry them. The trouble is that God never asked me to marry them. And um, do you know, I entertained the thought because I was kind of exploring what it was like to live a new kind of life out of the life that I had. And I thought maybe that could be true. But you know, the bottom line is this. I look back and I think, thank God. <laughs> now, not your sister, Mark, but I've seen some of those women since. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives <laughs> and he takes away. Blessed be his holy name. Amen. Come on, let's keep it real here. Blessed be his holy name. And you had that wild notion that this was the right one. And God in his great wisdom resisted, caving into your demands and your protests. And you've been whining for years, the one who got away. No, the person who got away was you. You had a narrow escape. Because God knows the end before the beginning. So if our faith is wrapped up in what God does for us, when He doesn't do for us what we think we need, we will have problems with our faith. We will become dysfunctional in our faith. And our faith has got to be this. You are who you say you are. Whatever I feel about this moment, whatever I think about what I got or I didn't get, you are the true, living, kind, glorious Father I have spent my whole life hoping for and searching for. You are who you say you are. Hope. What is hope? Hope is that joyous expectation that God will be for us what we need Him to be for us. Not do for us what we need Him to do for us, but will be for us. You know, in every season of your life, God wants to reveal a part of his nature and his character to you, but we're all so preoccupied with what we want. We don't ask the question, well, who are you wanting to be for me, God? You know, I've been through seasons where I've, I've, I've seen, experienced God as the most powerful supernatural force on the planet. But, you know, he decided he wanted to show me his nature as a father. Because if I don't have a balanced understanding of God... There's a whole counsel to his nature. There are facets to his personality that not many seek or even desire to see. I'm looking forward to the day whenever walking on water is not some song we sung, you took me out across the water, but the church is living in the reality of the supremacy of God over all nature. And we command the waves. Imagine you could just turn the water on over your garden and save. You say to the coal in the fire, be lit in the name of Jesus. Think of the money in there. It's not just enough to say that I believe God is good. I must also expect his goodness to manifest in some way, shape, or form in my relationship with him. And finally, love. And he says the greatest of these is love. Let me tell you a secret. 
in every circumstance of your life, there is a devil who is at work to destroy three things. Your faith, your hope, and your love. And you know what? He knows right where to kick you. You think he's after your marriage? It's temporal. You think he's after your kids? It's temporal. What he's really after in the circumstances and the problems and the difficulties of your life is not the temporal. He's after the eternal. If anyone knows the value of these three attributes, it's the devil himself. And of course, he knows that these are the very means by which God brings increase and life and fullness to the human soul and to a church community. But at every moment of your life where the enemy wants to steal, to rob and destroy, there is a loving heavenly father who wants to increase your faith. He wants to expand your hope. And he is desperate, desperate to fill your life with the greatest capacity for love that any human heart could experience. And guess what? You get to choose who has the final word on those three matters. So let me ask you, over these crazy few years that we've all lived through, over the bad things that have happened to many of us in this room, I'm part of that story too. Do you honestly think that God didn't want to increase your faith? He didn't want to expand your hope. He didn't want to explore the depths of love with you. Of course he did, but you decided whether or not you would have those upgrades. I use little phrases that I've learned by a huge price in my life. And I know they don't mean much to people who hear them for the first time, but they cost me dearly. In every problem, there is a promise. What that says is this, I know I will experience difficulties. I recognize that I have an adversity in my life, which is the enemy, but I am choosing to upgrade my expectation of who God is for me. I'm choosing to look for him, even in circumstances and situations that look like he's not there. Come on, wake up, church. You're getting something that cost me four years of my life for free. Wake up, church. You get to choose whose report you believe. Now, back to the churches as we draw this to a close. Do you know what changes communities? Not great worship teams. Not even kind-hearted pastors, of which I am the most gloriously kind. <laughs> None of those things. Do you know what changes communities? Whenever our faith in the nature and the character of God is growing and flourishing and increasing in our lives. You can walk through this door and you can either choose to camp in disappointment or you can make a new appointment with God to experience faith, hope, and love. That's your choice. I can't do that for you. All we are here to do is facilitate an environment for those growth spurts to happen. 
And I hear enough stories that people tell me that there are some evidences that that does occasionally occur in people's lives. Praise God. It's not great preaching. It's not great worship leading. I'm not being down on the worship team or myself. I think as far as if we were to compare them to some other places, they'd be pretty good. But the reality is that's not what changes our world. What changes our world is when my faith somehow gets bigger than my problem. My hope. Do you wake up in the morning? Somebody asked me this question this week. What's the first thing you think about when you wake up? I had to think, will my knee hurt? Because while I've been lying in one position all night long, getting up can be tricky some days. And he said to me, what's your last thought when you go to bed? And I thought, will my knee hurt in the morning? <laughs> and he said to me, is that the best thought you can have <laughs> as you go to bed? And I thought, I couldn't argue. Of course it isn't. But you know, well, imagine what it would look like if we went to bed at night and we thought, God, tonight you're going to meet me in my dreams. I'm going to see you. In fact, last night, God told me to speak on this this morning. At 2.30 in the morning, I had a dream. And in this dream, God said, remind the church that these things are the things that are my priorities and my promises to them. So how are you doing on a scale of 1 to 10? Where is your faith? Is it down here somewhere or a little bit higher? Or I don't mean to be rude, but I don't really believe there are many of us who are at a 10. Otherwise, our worship would have gone off the scale. Just telling you how I see it. I hope. How hopeful are you in the God who can do the impossible? Scale of 1 to 10. You measure it. Not my business. I got my own problems. Trust me. How are you doing on hope? Do you know that a community of hope can change a city? See, what's lacking in these churches is not worship teams, it's faith, it's hope. And here's what I've noticed, and the devil loves to do this. He loves to steal your love for Jesus. He is jealous for your love and affection for Jesus. And you know, because I've been around a long time and there's enough lines on my face to plant potatoes in, the amount of men and women I found in ministry who start out so full of love and so full of faith and so full of hope and they end up cynical, disappointed, disillusioned and sadly disconnected from the very God who led them into ministry. And if that can happen to a man in any, or a woman in any context in church, let me ask you the question. I've got two minutes with you. Do you think that what they carry will infect the atmosphere they seek to lead? If I come to you and I speak to you of measles, but I have mumps, what will you be infected with after you shook my hand? It won't be measles. It will be mumps. And I can sing songs of hope and joy and celebration, but if I am not carrying hope, joy, and celebration, this invisible contract between you and I is not going to cause you to have anything less than my disappointment or my disillusionment. But you have the most glorious invitation to step away from the temporal and to fix your eyes on the eternal. And moments like this 
they make those things clear to us. The church was God's idea. The future is God's fulfillment. Every one of us in between those two extremities are only bit players in a much larger drama called the divine romance where God is building a people of power, a place of praise where passion and faith and hope and love rise in the hearts of people, often with great adversity, because I often find those things go together. As they think differently and live differently, they turn up in their world and they are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb. And listen, and the word of their testimony. You know your friends who you're trying to win for Jesus, they're not asking you to fake it that you've got pain. Everybody has pain. Here's what they're waiting for you to say. I might be in pain. My life may be tragically difficult right now, but my heart is so full of love and so full of passion and so full of delight in Jesus Christ. People don't want you to pretend that you haven't got a problem. I don't know where we get this in church. You know, we call the fake it ministries international. People know you have a problem. They probably knew you had a problem before you had a problem. People see things. What they want is genuine people to say, while I, though you slay me, <laughs> though you slay me, though my life may look like it's gone down the tube or the toilet, I will praise you. I will glorify you. I will magnify you. I will celebrate you. Time is gone. Time is gone. Stand with me, please. Put your hand on your heart and ask the Spirit to show you throughout the course of this week how much faith lives here, how much hope resides inside of me, God. And how is my love and affection for you? Is it at its peak or has it become weak? And no matter where you find yourself, ask for an upgrade. Say, God, you who began this work in me, carry it on, Lord. And though the enemy seeks to destroy my faith, hope, and love, I am expecting that you, the God of greatness and kindness, will increase my affection for you, my passion for you, my hope in you and my faith that you are who you say you are and you will always do what you promised you will do. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, thank God that's over. Thank God that's over. Have a great week.